And I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. I'm Sean Johnson. And you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader, on which we are discussing Eudora Welty's novel, The Optimist's Daughter. In particular, or more specifically, we are discussing the rest of the book, <laughs> uh, parts <laughs> three and four. We're gonna we now we're gonna discuss the book as a whole. Get the big picture, all those sorts of phrases. Before we um, dig into that, I want to remind everybody that next week will be our Q&A episode. So we will have a thread for that over on Substack at closereads.substack.com where you can post your questions. It's always a good place to do that. Uh, lots of good conversation there. And you'll get a sense of what's coming on the next episode if you if you like that sort of thing, if you like some spoilers. We also have, of course, our Paralandra discussion over there for the you know people who are supporting the show. Uh, which we are very appreciative of. And those conversations have been really, really good. So got another one of those coming soon as well. Heidi, how was your birthday? It was great. It was a really good birthday. Yep. Um, on my actual birthday, we just did like family dinner with steaks and that kind of thing. Um, and, but I did have a birthday party that was pretty great. Scott hired a chef and they came over to our house and he did like a four course South American extravaganza Huh, that was fun. Cocktail pairings. It was awesome. So we had that a really fun time. Nice. So have you have you guys been going to all the Denver sports this last couple of weeks? Uh well, we have not been to a single Avs game. So in that okay. one that failed, but we have indeed been going to we have been living the good life, actually. Now that I'm talking about it to you right now, I'm realizing, like, I'm hearing myself say it. Um, but yeah, my husband's company has uh, season tickets to the Nuggets, and they are doing very well in the sports mm-hmm. ball, basketball right. arena right now. Right. And so you knew the right sport. That's that's, that's good. That's right. Yes. I even ha- I know about the Nuggets. And I'm telling you, going to a playoff game is an event in your life. Like it is a, it is, it's a, a very spectacular experience. So it's been very true. fun. Yeah. Well, speaking of events and lives, this has been quite the event in Laurel McKelva hands Hashtag life, I guess. David transition. This is yeah. catch on. Um, and, I'm really good uh, at this, David. Well, you know, hopefully after a while, you pick up a thing or two of do you do enough podcasts eventually you should be able to build in a transition here and there but yeah. uh, we we are we are here to discuss the optimist daughter and Heidi I know you have limited time because you're meeting with I don't know an architect or <laughs> I something don't, I don't want to talk anymore about my uh, I got I got dash life. out to my yeah. what is it, massage architect meeting what is it my architect <laughs> is coming over I, I got also, I got to talk to my lobbyist event of the the weekend though. Um, I went to a conference this weekend down in Atlanta and I got to visit the Tim McIntosh and Mm. old baby Arden. That's what really counts right there. That's right. That was was even better than Nuggets playoff basketball. (laughs) Wow. For the record, we, that's, that's, that goes on Arden's blurb. Even better than Nuggets basketball. (laughs) She's a doll. And Tim is the most loving father. He did say, and I quote, all I want to do is just lay in bed with her and watch her breathe. End quote. (laughs) That also goes on Arden's blurb. All right. So I I mean, transitioning from what I just said back to Optimist's daughter is a little bit less humane, I think, than your Although Tim is in his own way an optimist. Speaking of Tim's daughter... Let's talk about the optimist. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. There we go. Yours was better, Sean. (laughs) So, okay. So last week, our question of the episode was, 
well, how do people feel about Faye? Oh my and Johnny, we had not read the whole thing. The, the text going back and forth. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I know. We, we really I'm should. Losing well, it. you know, we're going to give him a chance. We're going to give him a chance to to go in on it. Um, we, you know, we um, a couple of things that people said were things like Aubrey saying, "I'm torn about whether or not I feel sympathy for for Faye." On the one hand, she's whiny, entitled, and petulant. However, this is how we are seeing her through Laurel's eyes. Few people are at their best when in a uh, hospital situation while grieving or at a loved one's funeral. Um, she also is a product of her upbringing. Uh, we get we got several comments of that ilk. Okay, here's Elise saying, I'm torn in two about Faye on the one hand. It has been a long time since I've had such a strong desire to physically reach into a book and just shake and or slap a character, <laughs> which just goes to show how brilliant a job Welty is doing making me care. On the other hand, the more I've sat with the book, the more I pity Faye precisely because she is so awful. She is such a stunted person emotionally, intellectually, psychologically to live in a mind so narrow that is incapable of touching others to give or revive true sympathy slash empathy is a ghastly thing. Um, okay. So those are the kind of things Rachel does say the character of Faye is like an evil stepmother. Those are the kind of things that people are saying on the thread. If you'd like to jump in and add your own uh, comments, then feel free to do so. Sean, you, you did you did send us some some text messages which were um <laughs> m- along the lines of wanting to slap her as well i think um you did not take kindly to her comment on the breadboard uh, <laughs> you seem to have universally positive feelings about breadboards is what i came away from yeah, that text thread on. feeling so do you uh, do you agree with that two-pronged approach that on the one hand you have sympathy for her being the way that she is or do you view her as and I'm going to use this phrase, I know it's simplistic, but for the sake of conversation, as sort of just truly villainous. Like, I'm not villainous like Sauron, but in the context of this book, she's just truly antagonistic. Ye- yes. A- yes, and. Yes, plus. Yes, asterisk. <laughs> Is the response I, that every good book should engender, I Yeah, think. that's right. And my feelings about Faye maybe sum up in a lot of ways my feelings about the novel, because when we reach the halfway point, I still had a lot of questions and I was not, I was not sure what this novel was going to do or Mm -hmm. how I was going to feel about it, or even what, what to expect from the second half of the novel. Uh, Mm -hmm. But I feel like you, you Dora Welty delivered big time. And uh, (laughs) what she did with Faye even was remarkable because Faye is, uh, you get the impression that she is a very, thin, small-souled human early on. But there are a lot of extenuating circumstances. You meet her family. uh, You see the awkward situation she's in. But when she returns at the end of the novel, she really does. (laughs) She she really is revealed to be almost entirely soulless. uh, Or she has just, uh, she's experienced some kind of demonosis she's been shrunk beyond (laughs) past her humanity or out of her humanity so that she can uh just speak with so little feeling about the dead and about beauty and goodness Mm -hmm. (laughs) and uh yeah what was her line about the the breadboard she says, who wants an everlasting breadboard? Who wants it's, an everlasting breadboard? It's the last thing on earth anybody needs. What a stupid question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then later she says, this is 177 uh, on my, in my book. Uh, she's 
Laurel's talking about her mother's bread recipe, and she says, it all tastes alike, don't it? Mm. Uh, it was the other totally <laughs> inhuman comment on Faith's part. This that, I mean, I like, I like food. Uh, I'm not allowed, contractually, I'm not allowed to like it as much as David, but I like food. And uh, the the idea of having a taste for good things <laughs> is just so connected to my understanding of what it means to have uh, a soul. And, uh, and Faye has no capacity for, for caring for these things. And right at the point that, like Laurel, you want to bash her over the head with the breadboard, <laughs> Weldy sort of brings you all the way through that sequence of emotions to this even greater sense of pity. I feel like the pity mm. that I felt for Faye by the end of the book was different and deeper than the than the pity I might have felt for her at the halfway point. Mm. Uh, because it was not just a pity for someone who had a lousy upbringing. Uh, it was this, the pity you feel for someone who has missed out entirely on being human. Mm. So I also transitioned pretty quickly from anger at Faye to this deep kind of sadness at at the very existence of Faye, uh, sadness on her behalf, right? that she is in a state where she can't even, she's not even aware of how pitiable her situation is. Mm. Uh, and and I, I think that Laurel has been a... Uh, a sort of conduit for us to experience the events of the novel. And Wilty does a really great job of getting us to that point as Laurel also gets to that point. And uh, so, yes, uh, I, I don't think that Faye is, Faye is not redeemed uh, in that way or in any way through that, but she's uh, uh, no longer, I think she ceases to be a villain uh, and and becomes just an object of of utter pity, kind of like a is it a golem situation? Like you know, comments about pity always call to mind Gandalf's sure. conversation with Frodo in Fellowship of the Ring when they're that's right. deep in the mines. It's pretty that stayed Bilbo's head. <laughs> yeah, that's the one. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so Heidi, in our text thread, you said that you 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 uh, referenced Rex Mushroom. You called mm -hmm. her, what did you say, a Southern Rex Mottram or something like yeah. that. What did you mean by that? I know there's a lot of Brideshead uh, superfans. Yeah. Brideshead revisited superfans in our audience. So That's right. Know. So our Brideshead readers will recognize Rex Mottram uh, for those of our listeners who don't know about Rex. He is a character in my favorite novel. And the I know one of these, one of the favorite novels of these two guys here, um, a mid-century Catholic novel kind of exploring the problems of modernity and the impact of modernity on the soul, among other things. Um, and, and Rex is a character who is described as being half a person, um, like a truncated, divided person, not even divided, just like unformed in his humanity. I mean, I just think, Sean, you said that so well in describing Faye. Uh, it, it isn't just it isn't that Faye is like snidely whiplash, like a villain who understands <laughs> what is good and rejects it, right? Yeah. 
Bay and Rex are people who wouldn't recognize goodness if it hits them in the face, which it does multiple times in each novel, right? Like <laughs> it's like he literally uh, Laurel almost hits her with the breadboard. Right? But <laughs> well, and in she, both cases, yes. they're encountering food and they don't recognize yes, it. Yes, they yeah, cannot yeah. understand, right? The the famous line, the soul, the S-O-L-E, the, the fish that they were eating for Rex was so unobtrusive that he failed to notice <laughs> it, right? And the play <laughs> yeah. on the word soul is so powerful. And I think that that's very similar here to Faye. Uh, Rex is a little bit more benign in his interactions with others. He's more like, right. you know, like the the good old boy who's gonna, you know, the the shaking hands, just putting through business deals kind of guy, wheeling and dealing um yeah. for the sake of money and and what his version of the good life, which is just appetite, right? Right. Um, yeah. He'll he'll put his arm around you and he'll stick a cigar in your pocket, but there's yeah, nothing else there. But there's yeah. nothing there. But for Faye, she's she's vindictive, she's malicious. Uh, and she's self-protective, which I think that that self-protective piece is a little bit what draws a, a I think, a proper pity for her. Because right. to be so self-protective means that you have been hurt. And there is no other way to lose your soul other than to become either so... Uh, either to be wounded over and over again, which seems clear from Faye, or to be completely deprived of goodness, which seems true for both of them. And yeah. probably for people that we've met in everyday life as well, we just get that, right? You try to talk about the life of the soul. You try to talk about an interior life or an appreciation for beauty or virtue, and there's just no capacity for it. And if the breadboard is our objective correlative or our symbol <laughs> of eternal things, I find the word everlasting in her rejection of the breadboard to be very yep. compelling, right? Who needs an everlasting breadboard? Who needs permanent things? Who needs things passed on from generation to generation that will nourish you and provide the opportunity for nourishment and for memory? Um, and, uh, she's, she doesn't want the everlasting thing. She doesn't have room for the permanent things and neither right. does Rex. And that is the great tragedy of modernity. We don't even have, it's not even that we recognize the good and reject it like Sauron, like a villain <laughs> like that, a classical villain, right? Yeah. Um, it's that, it's that there are amongst us and even within us a temptation to not even care about them, to not have room for them, to be like, I'd rather have, I don't want my grandmother's China. It doesn't match my house. I would rather just go down and buy something, right? Like that is, there's there's a loss of that permanence um, and, and Faye represents the kind of person who would do that. Yeah. And you had mentioned in our last conversation the obtrusive symbol at one point of the fig tree. Mm. And it, in reading the second half of the novel, I'm more and more convinced that Welty's selection of symbols is intentional and pointed. And so uh, Faye, in rejecting these things, is also rejecting every uh, every sort of every kind of womanly virtue that is upheld at any point in the novel. Uh, right. She she herself refuses to care about uh, nourishing any kind of life. Uh, she is, uh, she's preparing to, who knows what, what will become of Faye, but she's preparing to uh, close herself off in this house. She has made choices in life that have uh, led her to this point where she has no children. Uh, she has uh, 
lost the husband that she had, and she has thrown away any opportunity to become a mother to this uh, to this woman uh, that she is I, has a kind of bond with, uh, at least in the conventional terms of what what marriage and means to a family, uh, and she despises all of it, has no time or interest or value uh, to place on any of it. Hmm. I also, I was reminded the other literary comparison that that occurred to me was uh, the dwarves at the end of the last battle, C.S. Lewis's last oh, battle. yeah, in the stable. Uh, yeah, who are <clears throat> dragged into heaven, basically, uh, but can't see it. Uh, hmm. they, they imagine themselves to still be in the dark stable, and uh, you know, Aslan the lion provides a a rich feast for them, and uh, they can't smell it or taste it, and they imagine that they're just eating, you know, garbage. <laughs> and uh, and it's it's because of their own you know, willful rejection of it, or their own uh, you know inability to to appreciate the the reality that is all around them. Uh, it's very. Well, it's very sad right? for the similar reasons. It is. So this, to go along with what you're saying, Sean, on the bottom of page 178, um, I just think this is so powerful. I loved this whole interaction here. And and again, to go beyond the, beyond the content into the form, like that Welty accomplishes so much with so few words is mm-hmm. like incredibly compelling to me. Just this is masterful mm-hmm. writing. Um, the bottom of 178, Faye says, I don't know what you're making such a big fuss over. What do you see in that thing? Asked Faye. The whole story, Faye. The whole solid past, said Laurel. Every single word there is so perfect. The whole story, Faye. The whole solid past. Whose story? Whose past? Not mine, said Faye. The past isn't a thing to me. I belong to the future. Didn't you know that? Man, <laughs> like this is the future belongs to Faye and we should all be freaking out about that. Oh, man. <laughs> I yeah. think that's a lot of why we do what we do, right? This is why we read books and talk about them. This is why we educate our children the way we do. This is why we attend the churches that we do. This is why we incre- are creating uh, a larger conversation is because the future belongs to Faye and that's that should terrify us, right? Not yeah. not to shut us down completely and put us into despair, but to you know to keep your grandmother's china and read some good books and like care about the whole solid past. So then why in the end at the bottom of 179 uh, a car arrives and Faye says take it. There'll give me one less thing to get rid of. And then Laurel says, never mind. I think I can get along without that too. And then we get some interiority. Memory lived not in initial possession, but in the freed hams, pardoned and freed, and in the heart that can empty but fill again, in the patterns restored by dreams. Laurel passed Faye and went into the hall, took up her coat and handbag. So with what you're saying, the virtue of preserving the past, caring about mm-hmm. it, all those sorts of things, why then in the does she decline why does she not need to take it with her how is she doing that even though she's not taking the thing with her 
Right. Yeah. I think that she comes to realize here that, uh, that the breadboard itself is a, is a thing that matters. (laughs) Yes. Yes. (laughs) It is indeed. Everybody take a shot. Um, (laughs) it is a thing that matters, but it is, it is the, the keeping of the past, the keeping of memory is not in the things themselves, at least to Welty, at least to Laurel here, mm-hmm. um, but but is kept within the memory. Memory keeps those things alive. And I think that's particularly important for Laurel, um, who is has so many memories to hold and watched her mother lose her memory mm-hmm. and saw her father die having slipped past memory. And 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 that and that's been so tormenting to her throughout the novel. What does that mean for my family that I'm the only one who remembers? Yeah. And so she had consolidated that in this breadboard, right? And then she realizes I am the memory keeper. I am the optimist's daughter, right? I am the next generation that is holding this. And and then she can can walk out freed from that. There is a part of me that wishes she had taken the breadboard. I think I believe <laughs> that that things do that the things themselves do yeah. hold memory I've been in a particularly a poignant way. Um, and so I, I kind of wish she had taken it with her, but also had that same realization. So, right. Mm, it can be both. Yeah. Do we think then that the it's that the the wealthy saying that oh the 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 items themselves don't actually matter if we if we preserve the memories themselves or is that for or is it that for Laurel being allowing the item itself to go is some sort of active agency that empowers her or something like that? I, question, I think it's Sean. I think it's a little bit of both, maybe more of the latter. I this passage read to me like a parallel of. Uh, a passage we spent a lot of time discussing in our last book, uh, Diary of a Country Priest, uh, where there's this poignant act of renunciation uh, and uh, the uh, the Comtesse throws her golden locket and the lock of her, her dead son's hair into the fire uh, and what it means for her to give up that physical connection to the son that she loved uh, and and how it, it implies or entails a kind of greater restoration of her son to her, right? In I mean, it's more religiously charged, uh, but in grasping on to the last physical connection she has to her dead son, the priest is warning her that she's actually uh, hazarding the opportunity of ever truly being reunited with him. And that she has to give up the physical token uh, in order to receive back the son in full or in reality. And uh, I think here the same is going on with Laurel. Uh, the after that, after the night with the bird in the house, which, which we was need to talk a, about before we go. What I know is such a phenomenal section. That's uh, she. She had me there. Uh, I was a. I I wept at the end of that section. Even I mean, it was uh, so good. And uh, but that's one of the things that Laurel has not done is process her grief and come to terms with the loss of her husband. Uh, and so I think this is so fresh on the heels of that that 
letting go of this physical object uh, is uh, the the rest or the final part of the process or another part of that process where she is uh, acknowledging the fact that um, her husband is is gone, uh, so, allowing herself to mourn that loss. Uh, I think is is what Welty is doing here with, with the the breadboard. Although I too uh, wish that she had. <laughs> That she had taken the breadboard, but this, but this breadboard can't really be an everlasting breadboard. Yeah. So maybe that's the. Uh, I was, I was thinking about how, from a dramatic standpoint, it makes like sense. It's yeah. powerful for her to leave it behind. Yeah, but I don't know that from a like a uh, theological standpoint, even. Yeah, unless I, I like the choice. Like I like what right. the choice yeah. suggests. Unless the the Laurel's thought is Which partially is me throwing myself in. No, and I'm with you 100. percent but, uh, unless Laurel's thought is partly here uh, that this exchange has now given significance to this object for Faye, mm-hmm. and that now for good or for ill, the breadboard is a reminder of this conversation, this encounter, uh, these uh, really truthful, blunt things that she has said to Faye. And maybe that's one of the the virtues of leaving it behind. <laughs> I mean, okay. she could just throw it in the garbage the next minute. <laughs> can can I transition us from here to this bird yes. section with a with a meta question? So here we get we get the breadboard as an objective correlative, and the idea that even in real life and not just in books, objective correlatives hold meaning for our lives. Right? That ob that objects or images or whatever can be the things by which we see the world, by which we interpret it, by which we experience it. That that give life to the abstractions that we're being, that we're living with all the time. Yeah. And yet then we get this section earlier. I don't really know why I said, and yet I really meant to say, and also we have this uh, other section earlier with the bird, which is so clearly in that dramatic Shakespearean Homeric literary way, an objective correlative, a oh, metaphor, yeah. like it's Poe. You're like, it, it's so, <laughs> it's so on its, on the nose of rhetorical, I mean, a literary device. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm having a hard time. I think it's genius. I think it's incredible. I'm not complaining about any of that, but it's mm-hmm. been interesting trying to think through how, what is wealthy doing squaring those two things where she has this objective correlative at the end, which the character says, okay, the objective correlativeness of that is not meaningful to me anymore. I don't need it to experience the the life. And yet she, the whole book is wrapped around, literally wrapped around this scene mm-hmm. where the objective correlative of the trapped bird unlocks the story. Because we talked earlier last week, rather, about how one of the things that we weren't sure, what we were waiting for is, the interiority, like, and the second half of the book becomes a completely different novel. Like, right. I think you can kind of tell where she um, took it from a short story to a novel, uh-huh. and like the places that she expanded and things like that. And part of that seems to have been like that interiority is unlocked in this experience with the bird. So, how do you read? I mean, I don't know how to ask the question I'm asking really, but. <laughs> Sean, you said you wept. Heidi, you were nodding as he was talking about that. Do you, well, first of all, do you agree with him that that's like the, the the central sort of brilliant section of the book? Oh, you're muted. Yeah, I do. Okay. I think that's right. So 
How does she th- how do you think Belsey wants us to read that section? I guess is what I'm asking. Because then she's gonna take the objective gorilla, she's gonna present another objective correlative and then sort of pull it away or suggest that it's not necessary. So I'm trying to figure out how do you read the objective correlative, the metaphor that is the bird in the room and, mm-hmm. and our and how we interpret Laurel's Laurel's journey. I think that um that whole section opens up the entire novel because we do get the interiority. I like that word that um, that gives us access to Laurel's history. And it turns mm-hmm. out that so much of Laurel's history is her mother's history, right? It's this generational experience that Laurel is a part of right? There's home and there's up home, right? There's two homes, but she doesn't live in either of those places now. That's in, that's very interesting because place is so connected to her interiority and to her experience. Um, so, and if we, if we take this theme of memory, that Laurel is the keeper of memory. The thing that hurts her most in this whole novel, or at least overtly seems to hurt her the most, is that people aren't remembering her parents properly the way she remembers them, which she makes the assumption that the way she remembers them is the right way to remember them, right? And we are not given enough clues to know whether we can take her word for that or not throughout the entire novel. Um, But the big wound to her is that her mother loses herself at the end of her life and is not what Laurel believed, is not what Laurel, who Laurel thought she truly was, whatever that means. Mm -hmm. And that's also Mm -hmm. true for the judge, right? The optimist, like if he's the optimist, he also doesn't end his life as he, as she remembers him from her childhood. Hmm. Also, her husband, who died young, is denied the opportunity to create any memories at all that are going to last from one generation to the next and endure in anybody beyond her. She has that dream where he comes back and says, I wanted that, you know? Yes. And it's the confluence of all of three of those different kinds of loss, plus plus over overlaid on top of that is the existence of Faye, as we've already talked about, <laughs> and the loss of her home and the fact that she is living in a different place displaced from her home, which she's actually the most, I think she's the most complicated person in the novel, which makes sense, right? She's the protagonist because she's upholding all of this memory and thing and all of it, and Who, yet she leaves the, it behind. Laurel, Laurel, Laurel yeah. Right? Yeah, she's, yeah. She leaves it behind. And, she does, yeah. And it's actually Faye who lives there. So that's complex. Like that, that adds, I think, a whole other layer of interpretation that's possible for discussion. And we have to remember that. We think of her as the hero, which is true. But if, if keeping memories is the most important thing, is she doing that, right? We're left with that question. And we're given the image of children waving Exactly. Mm-hmm. And that is, and the last words to her from Tish, I think are compelling in that way. Uh, there now you'll make it by the skin of your teeth. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think she's complex as well, but, and in that case, then she probably has to leave the breadboard behind because the breadboard is all of those memories that are so complicated and so multi-layered. And then there's this trapped bird trapped in the house. Like is she, is the bird like Sean, what 
who what is the bird <laughs> uh is it her i think the bird is so one of the things that i really i really liked about this section was um the i don't know if you noticed how prominent birds were throughout the novel yes mm-hmm. Uh, there's that great scene where all of the bridesmaids are talking and the uh, mockingbirds keep uh, coming up or being being mentioned or uh, drowning out their speech. Uh, and like, the women are sort of mirrored, mirrored by the mockingbirds. Uh, and then there's another significant scene where uh, two cardinals are are uh, flying around and described in, in particular detail. And it seems like Welty is prepping us for the that long night with the bird trapped in the house uh, by slowly allowing significance to accrue to birds. Uh, <clears throat> I think it's a uh, oh yeah, it's uh, Flannery O'Connor talking about her story, "Good Country People," mm. uh, the Holga with the prosthetic leg. Uh, and she describes her own method in telling that story of starting out with this benign object, this prosthetic leg that this awful girl has, uh, and then working really carefully and painstakingly to allow that leg to accumulate significance and meaning as the story goes on. Uh, and I think rather than doing it in a single image, Welty is doing it in a type of image hmm. and as birds become more noticeable and more significant. And then she... Uh, brings us to that place where this bird is uh, is a huge uh, symbol, some sort of objective correlative itself. And I think at that point, then the bird is able to function on a couple of levels. It's her. It's uh, it's all of the things inside of her. Right. It, that that chapter is dealing with the problem that we sensed in Laurel that she's very passive, and it's revealed there that the reason is partly because she has bottled up all of these things and not properly grieved uh, for them, not properly uh, looked at her memories of her mother or uh, the the fact, the reality of her husband's death. Uh, and so trap, she's trapped in the house with this thing, which is a symbol of what's trapped inside of her that she does not want to think about or look at or touch, right? She doesn't want to handle it. She doesn't want to be in the same room with it. Uh, and, but, you know, by the end, she's, uh, she's, she comes to a different place. And uh, I think, too, that she is like her father in that. Uh, and that helped, uh, seemed like a key for me in understanding the opening of the novel, because I could not figure out why her father was the way he was during his recovery uh, he did not. <clears throat> he did not talk to his daughter. Uh, he did not really respond to this, uh, to the reading of the books, which used to be this beloved activity that she remembered fondly. Her parents sharing, uh, and it seems like it's because he too has not really. Uh, his optimism did have a kind of double edge to it, and he never really prepared for the loss of his wife. Uh, and so he was never really uh, 
able to be faithful to her. Uh, Laurel uses that language right about Faye. That she suspects she's already been unfaithful to her father's memory, uh, that her father was never able to be faithful to uh, the memory of Laurel's mother because he had never, he never had a right relationship to the loss of her uh, or to the grieving of her. And uh, then he's brought back together with his daughter, who is a reminder of this, this fact and probably uh, probably prompts a lot of guilt, I imagine. <laughs> uh, hmm. Because for for the judge, Laurel would be the strongest reminder of his wife, his first wife, right? She he she would be the kind of breadboard uh, <laughs> for him. And hmm. uh, uh, so I think that that chapter really uh, seemed to explain a lot of the mystery in the first half of the novel and uh, obviously you know, allow Laurel to arrive at the place where she does by the end. Heidi, what do you think of that, all that section? I think, I think that's, I think I like what Sean's saying. It's so. Although it would be pretty funny if you just were like, nope. Nope. <laughs> that's right. Stupid. She's been sitting oh. there quietly and then all of a sudden she just, nope. eh, That's not it. Nice <laughs> try. Yeah. No, I like what you said about the judge and how this, I think that this middle section, if it is the middle section, um, it does open up and shed light on the things that have gone before and gives us compelling psychological uh, reasons for the actions that have been hitherto mysterious or um un they they kind of ring true right like but we don't know why they ring true and then it slowly opens up over the course of the novel and these really important um details that are revealed and memories that are revealed uh, which speaks again to Welty's um craftsmanship um and i i think that that is similar to the diary of a country priest but it is my opinion that welty does that with a little bit more dexterity in the sense that it we 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 somehow feel that these actions ring true in parts one and two even though we don't know why and in mm -hmm. diary of a country priest it feels a little bit more disconnected you're kind of like wait what why? And then later on, it's revealed and that kind of stains backward throughout the whole novel. But I mm -hmm. think with Welty, there's a little bit more solid ground at the beginning that we think either we can relate to it more somehow, um, or there's a little bit more uh, precision in the writing that gives us an understanding that that this does make sense that Faye is acting this crazy. I don't really know why, but I can trust the novel to reveal it to me at some point. And she mm -hmm. does. It does. Yeah. The the um, bird stuff reminded me of the Paul Lawrence Dunbar poem, Sympathy, which begins with the line, I know what the yeah. caged oh, yeah. bird feels, alas, yeah. which yeah. then inspired Maya Angelou's story, or, or memoir, I know what the cage, or what, I know what the caged bird feels, which is... Sings. sings well, I know sorry. what the caged bird sings, yeah. Mm -hmm. Which is, sorry. So if you, so if you, if you, it's one of my favorite poems and each stanza kind of begins with one of those with, with a line that's like that. So I know what the caged bird feels alas is the first line when the sun is bright on the upland slopes beginning of second stanza. I know why the caged bird beats his wing 
till its blood is red on the cruel bars. Stanza three, I know why the caged bird sings on me when his wing is bruised and his bosom sore. And Paul Lawrence Dunbar is writing this in 1890s, I think, 1880s, 1890s. And uh, he's speaking, at least in large part, about the plight of African-American people and, you know, experiences that they were they were having in the Jim Crow South and um or at least post war South but with the with the um burden of slavery still hovering over them. Here I don't think she's I don't think that she's trying to specifically reference that and say, oh Laurel is going through something similar to what Paul Lawrence Dunbar or <laughs> the son of a slave would have or the daughter of a slave. But I think that the image of this this bird that is, you know, terrified and and beating its wing and and till the, till its till its wings are sore and it can hardly fly, um, which is like cowering in the corner. I think that she recognizes that there is a universality to that image for anybody who has felt like they're. Um, uh, what is the line in the Angelou book? Um, she speaks about the idea of like feeling like you're forgotten hmm. uh, feel, and, and I think that part of what Laurel's has going on here is yes, there is a sense of preserving. She's the only one who can preserve the memory, but she also now all the people who would have remembered her are gone. They're gone. Yeah. So the mother, her mother, her father, the people who loved her, her husband, the potential to have children with that husband that they're gone. And so thus, the future memories of her are gone as well. And I think that's why at the end, that line is so poignant where she says it's page 179 right after, right before she decides not to take the breadboard. Uh, it says it occurred to Laurel that Faye might already have been faithless to her father's memory, which I think Heidi, you just mentioned. And then it says, I know you aren't anything to the past. She said, you can't do anything to it now. End quote. Then, and neither am I. And neither can I, she thought, although it has been everything and done everything to me, everything for me. The past is no more open to help or hurt than was father in his coffin. The past is like him, impervious and can never be awakened. It is memory that is the somnambulist. It will come back in its wounds from across the world like Phil, calling us by our names and demanding his rightful tears. It will never be impervious. The memory can be hurt time and again, but in that may lie its final mercy." As long as it's vulnerable to the living moment, it lives for us. And while it lives, and while we are able, we can give up its due. And so I think that last bit there is really poignant for me when thinking about the idea that those who can remember her are also gone. In a way, she's sort of, you know, forgotten. And so as long as it's vulnerable to the living moment, it lives for us. The memory lives for us. And while it lives and while we are able, we can give it up its due. And so there's a relationship between her and memory, which is so important. And so that, I think that, you know, I think the bird stuff is playing into that. But I don't know that, I'm not suggesting that Welty is directly trying to call on this Paul Lawrence Dunbar poem. Right. Um, or again, that she's suggesting that Laurel is the same as, you know, if Laurel was the daughter of a slave, it would have been anything. Um, they would have been enduring something similar. Um but I think that there is a sense in which she feels both trapped and forgotten. Like the house is not the house that she remembers, but she doesn't have any, 
anybody to remember anything with, you know? Um, and the, and that's why I think all these relationships that she has with these people that she used to have with these people feel shallow. Now they're not true rememberers. You know, they don't, they're not remembering, they're not living, you know, her, her six bridesmaids. There's like the connection between them is like sort of still there, but it's not what it was. It's kind of foggy. Right. And I, and there's a there's a nostalgia there, but it nostalgia in the painful sense of the word. Like she word, like she's kind of longing for what they had when they were young before she had moved away and all that. But even she doesn't really connect with them in the way that they think that they're all connecting because she's living with a degree of grief that they're not. Mm-hmm. Um, so and yeah, the think, thing that the thing that created their bond doesn't exist anymore. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, Except. she remains displaced here at the end of the novel with a piece, right? That there's there's been an epiphany, there's there's mm-hmm. been a release. Um, the bird is an interesting, I, I think, a brilliant symbol in the in the book because I think it is a true symbol. Um, but like many true symbols, it's fluid, right? Like you can, mm-hmm. like you could write a term paper. If I were, you know, if I were teaching this book, right. 1200 words about the bird, right? Like they would have students say that it is her, you'd have students say there's Faye, right? Cause it's a despised creature. She wants out of the house and yet it, it's hard to get out. Right. And it's leaving <laughs> dirt all over the house. Right. And, um, and it's like a, a, an unwanted kind of trash bird. Right. Um, and she doesn't have pity for it. She just wants it out. And it's ruining the rooms where her parents dwelled and her own room, right? So you could make a case that the bird is symbolic of Fae. It also could be grief. It could be loss. It could be memory. Like there's lots and lots of different ways that the bird functions and creates a vibe or a mood, a tone within that whole section. Mm -hmm. And I think that another thing that the bird does for that section is it adds an urgency to it um, at that that there's there's always like this sense as you're reading that there's an element that is that that lacks peace like an intrusion mm-hmm. into mm-hmm. the story that gives it a weight of urgency that 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 without the bird would be more of like kind of like a peaceful contemplation scene right mm-hmm. but with the bird there it adds like a disruption or an intrusion and i right. think that worked beautifully i loved that uh, like so much, but that, that's because it's tied to to her psychology. Yes, it's yeah. not the book that's just telling us that it has meaning. Other people see the bird. Other characters see the bird and feel very differently about it. Like the man that, to it, right? But right. she, her psychology is informing how we feel about the image of the bird. Right, I think that's right. So the other thing that was interesting to me is if you zoom out from the psychological level of interpretation with what's going on between. Um, Faye and Laurel or in Laurel, you also have this whole contemplation on the South, right? If Faye is the future, then Laurel, who is the last link, like the transition generation, like the generation that actually loves the past, but can't have it. Mm. And then has to let it go to this new generation of devoid, vacant souls who are going Blind. to inhabit Blind the souls, culture, yeah. Blind right? Souls, yeah. Yes, they are going to inhabit and take over the culture. 
and they're going to live in the places where where people like Laurel and her family used to live. And now mm-hmm. it's been given to this to, to the phase of the world. What are we to do with that? Ought we to grieve that? Ought we to run escape that or fight it? Right. The the those who are staying behind wish Laurel would stay and fight for the house, and she doesn't want to. And and so that I think adds a, another layer of. Um, of interpretation that creates conflict within the story. Do you think that the, do you think that the book is raising the question at the end about whether Laurel leaving the way she's doing is the right choice or is it just the idea she has, she has no choice? Like, I think the book raises the question for sure, but and yet, I don't the, know the if circumstances, it's just my response. Yeah. Yeah. I had that same question too. And I'm not sure, but it, it seems like in the circumstances, it's hard to imagine what staying would look like for her. Uh, it seems like an impossibility. There's no place for her. Well, yeah. here's the reason I ask is because like 20 pages left in the book, there's they're wondering whether Faye's actually ever going to come back. Yeah. Then, and even then though, it seems like Laurel is ready to go. And mm-hmm. so when Faye reappears, it's not like at that moment, Laurel decides to leave. Because look, as Faye reappears right before Laurel leaves, so you know she could have there. You know, with twenty pages to go, we could have been. She could have been the one who's there to stay with the house. So just like the breadboard, she kind of abandons the house in a way to Faye. She abandons it to to the future <laughs> um, that Faye is going to usher in, and um, the, it talks. She raises the question of whether Faye has been unfaithful to her father's memory suggested in a way her father was unfaithful to her mother's memory and all those sorts of things. And, and the tragedy of her mother not being able to remain faithful to her parents' memory and all that. And yet here she is leaving, hmm. abandoning the memory, right. She's at least the objects of the memory. So then at the end, it's it's hard to, for me to, to know Like in the end is her abs- abandoning the images of the memory meant to be some sort of a triumph that is saying we don't need these things to preserve the memory of the people we love. And that that's the big epiphany. And thus it's that, cause that almost, there's almost like a dualism to that, that I'm not, that I'm not sure what the book is trying to say. Yeah. I don't know if it is trying to say anything. I think it's, I think it, I mean, it is trying to say something, but I don't think it's landing on. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. Like there's no, to me, I love that. It's, it's not sure. Sure, yeah, I'm not being the, complaining. I know you. I know yeah. you. I know you're I'm not, not trying to be. <laughs> but I'm trying. I'm just trying to answer the <laughs> yeah. question. Like I yeah, don't yeah. think that the book is saying that Laurel is like, you go, girl. You get out of there and leave that behind because Faye's taking over, and you got to yeah. save yourself. Like there's a grief, just as much grief about the culture that's being lost as there is, and the place that's being desecrated. That's the word she uses to Faye. Mm-hmm. You're mm-hmm. desecrating this place. And, and I mean, Sean, she is, right? <laughs> like, this is what Sean was saying earlier. You can't like the, the breadboard matter. This place matters. This life matters. And Laurel's the only one who remembers it. At least the story says so. And, and, mm-hmm. and, and the only one who has a personal attachment to this place, this house, these things, she grew up there and then she's leaving it behind to go North. Right. That's significant. Like there is a whole societal grief that is handed to us as readers, just as much as the psychological one. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. It's it seems very melancholy, not triumphant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it, it occurred to me just now too that she also she burns her mother's letters. Right? right. She she looked for her father's letters and then remembered that he always threw them away immediately. <laughs> uh, uh, that's right. So that's a distinction between her father and her mother, right, and herself. Uh, her mother held on to these things, and uh, it seems like Laurel is is making some sort of conscious choice. It's not just the breadboard. She's already also opted not to read the letters, mm. uh, but simply to to burn them. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe maybe so that I guess the only alternatives would be to to take them and not read them, which would seem odd, or to leave them to Faye, uh, which seems you know, profane. <laughs> so I know we got to wrap this up. One thing that it strikes me is that, I think we talked about this last week, Welty was a photographer. She got mm-hmm. a job for the WPA helping document the stories of people like, not just like, because sort of like Laurel's family's status, which was what she grew up in, but with people who were of the status of Faye's family, right? Um, you know, people who were, um, you know, having a hard time economically. She was sent out there to take sto- to to capture their stories, and she she took a lot of photos. And so, in a way, she was a memory preserver, right? And she's doing it through images and through and through their stories. And so, I've been thinking about how that play, plays into this, but that might be something we need to address next time because Heidi's got to get to her uh, her um, architect massage thing. Um, <laughs> that sounds weird. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. That's true. D- don't let any rumors yeah, right. <laughs> get started with that. Um, any, do you have any final thoughts? While you're thinking, um, I'm thinking for the... While you're thinking, I'm thinking that for our question of the week, what if we ask who was the optimist? Ooh, I like and that let people question. talk about that in the comments because well, we haven't yeah. addressed it. Yeah. It uses the word optimist to describe her father at various times, but that doesn't, you know, what writer isn't, you know, using a little bit of uh subterfuge and misdirection mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the titles of their books. So, oh, Sean, what about you? What do you got for final thoughts? Uh, I, it's more of a question than a thought. Maybe this is in keeping with the way the novel ends, but what do you think? What do you think is, is the significance of the final scene of the novel? Uh, we talked a lot about memory and the anxiety around memory and, um, you know, the, the novel ends with children. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, you could read it as this moment where all of these children are witnessing <laughs> Laurel's departure and will remember it. Uh, or not, is it just, is it, is it an image of, uh, an old, an old thing passing away and, uh, you know, for good or for ill, uh, giving way to something else, the children or the, you know, the next generation, I don't know what's going on there. Is it a throwaway image? It doesn't seem like a throwaway image. No, they pass by a courthouse and then a school and then she sees right. them in the mirror. Yeah. So the I mean the true future, she sees the true future in the in the past. I mean, there's a lot of different things going on there, but 
Sure. We can, we can try to unpack that next week too. Yeah. Give you another week to think about it. Yeah. I just think that the multi-generational, like the novel is not just about Laurel. I mean, she's, she is the meeting point of multiple um, class conflicts, um, psychological conflicts, family conflicts, and cultural ones. Mm -hmm. And, and that is like the children are, like the images of children, I think matter a lot, like because she's, she's leaving behind children in -hmm. this place that is changing and that could have, maybe should have been, she should have been hers. Yeah. Right. And then she's leaving it and, and the children are going to, they're going to be impacted by that. The children Mm -hmm. of this town are going to be impacted by the fact that that this this place, this memory is in the hands of Faye, not Laurel. Mm-hmm. And that Faye is a result of the judge's lack of vision. And um and I think that matters a lot. I think there's 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 implications to that far beyond just Laurel. And I think that the that their children kind of represent that in a sense. I think there's, it's the idea of she's looking and seeing something. And there's this idea of twinkling of their hands, like Mm -hmm. light. So seeing light is also, you know, it's a book about blind people being blind. Mm -hmm. So we get this idea of vision at the end. Okay. Heidi, um, you got to go. I know. So let's wrap this up. Um, Next week, then uh, we will do the Q and A. So be sure to, um, Leave your comments in the in the thread on that on the Substack closereads.substack.com if you've never checked that out. Uh, and then for next week, let us know in the comments to this episode who was the optimist. We'd love to have that discussion with you in the in the in the in the chat. And by that, I mean who is the true optimist, Heidi or Sean? Um, <laughs> that would be a very interesting conversation, actually. I didn't think would. about that. Oh, you know man. who's not the optimist? Of this uh, group? Well, well, the guy who may or <laughs> who? may not be going to England this week. The guy who, yeah. yeah. Well, by the time everyone like, hears I this, don't know if we're oh no! Make actually, this goes up. This goes up be, today. I'm definitely going to be sick. <laughs> I have had norovirus twice in the last three weeks. I've been perpetually sick for like three weeks. But you'd still um, be worried about it, even if you hadn't been, because you are not the optimist. I. <laughs> but we love you. So, I so am. French. And uh, for Heidi White and for Sean. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, thanks to everyone who has been listening, though, and, and for piping in on the conversation. The, the conversations over on the Substack have been pretty good. I just so want to really say good. So really, you should go really check those insights. out. Um, and then for, and it's great for those of you who are not on, on social media. You can feel like you can still tune in without having to um, participate in the... Use whatever adjectives uh, you want to use. And I just want to thank media. you all for saving me the trip to Facebook sometimes. And so <laughs> it's such a relief when the action is on Substack and I don't even have to go over there. <laughs> All right, Hattie, have fun with your um, arc- architect. Have fun yeah. in England. You <laughs> win. You. you win Thank this you. week. Yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thank you. Well, uh, I'll be posting some uh, lots of images, including over on, on Substack, no, uh, the notes feature they have there. I'm going to post as much as I can. I bought a um, a what do you think, a Polaroid camera to bring with me. Nice. And I'm going to incorporate it into stuff at the shop too. I've decided that when like kids come in with the window listeners who come in, I'm oh, going to take Polaroid great. pictures of them and like put put them up and all that kind of stuff. So anyway, yeah, we're going to 
hopefully we'll hopefully we'll make it there no i'm just kidding it's gonna be great um all right well for heidi white for sean johnson i'm david kern thanks so much for listening and until next time happy reading Thank you.